you have a Bible, we're going to be in um, the book of Revelation this morning. All right, Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we're going to take a scenic route to get there, though, forewarning. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to ultimately get to Revelation 2, but we're going to get there through Acts 19. So uh, if you want to find Revelation 2 and then mark it and then go find Acts 19, we're going to reference that this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in the chairs around you, the little rack either under your chair or the chair in front of you. Uh, our deacons were kind enough to put some Bibles out this week, um, which I appreciate. If you don't own a Bible, right? if you're like, this is awesome, I need a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you don't have access to one, um, you are welcome to either take the one that's there in the seat in front of you or stop by the info desk and we'll put a Bible in your hands um, we think it's important and we want you to have that. So with that said, um, Revelation 2 is where we're getting to through Acts 19. Um, the book of Acts is really Luke. Uh, it's kind of a continuation of the gospel of Luke. And, and in the book of Acts, Luke recounts what happens uh, after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, his ascension, uh, when he goes back to heaven. And so the book of Acts if you're not familiar with it, is really just Luke telling the story of what happened after, uh, after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. It's the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus going out, starting in Jerusalem, but, but ultimately out to kind of the, the edges of the known world at, at that time. And in the book of Acts, we kind of get some insight to a lot, or to, to several uh, churches that, that are started through, um, most of them through Paul, but, but several churches. We get some uh, kind of a picture of, of how those churches started. And one of the ones that I have always found fascinating is the church of Ephesus. Because right? we, we get to know a lot about the church in Ephesus. Um, and so that's, um, spoiler alert, that's what we're going to talk about in Revelations 2. But uh, in Acts 19, and re really the end of 18, all the way through 20, we get to learn a lot about the early days in the church in Ephesus. And so um, I would encourage you, if you get some time this week, maybe this afternoon, read, read through the end of chapter 18 in Acts 19, read through 20. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating, but I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version this morning, or at least try to. Okay. Um, so in Acts 19, Paul shows up in the city of Ephesus, and um, it, one of the most important cities in the, the world at that time. And, and as Luke records Paul's early days there, he shows up, uh, and the first place he goes to is uh, the Jewish synagogues. And he begins reasoning with the Jews and, and trying to persuade the Jews that uh, this Jesus is the Messiah, the, the promised Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to take away their sins. Um, and so he, he does that for a while, but because of their stubbornness, because of their sort of persistent unbelief, uh, Paul sort of redirects most of his attention to uh, the Greeks in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and so he, he kind of leaves the synagogues and he goes to some of these more public forums where the Greeks would, would be and he would try to reason with and persuade them to, to, to follow this Jesus, the one who had came uh, to, to die and to pay for their sins. He, he tried to convince uh, these Greeks that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And so um, <clears throat> according to, to Acts 19.10, he says this continued for two years. So for two years, Paul's on the ground in Ephesus, reasoning, persuading, convincing, continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews 
and Greek. So Paul's got like an extensive ministry going on here in the city of Ephesus. Right, but not only did Paul sort of flex his uh, intellectual prowess, right? Because Paul was a brilliant dude, man. He was. He was well-trained, well-educated, could speak multiple languages. Like he had it going on. But, but not only was Paul sort of flexing his intellectual capacities, there was also a very clear work of the Spirit going on in the city of Ephesus uh, as evidenced, <coughs> excuse me, the following verse, chapter 19, verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So not only is Paul like, doing like master uh, logic and reasoning, but, but man, the, God's also doing powerful things through Paul. There's people being healed. There's people, um, and that their lives are being transformed through the hand of Paul, through the ministry of Paul. And it was this combination of Paul's like superior intellect and uh, this, this obvious outpouring of God's spirit that really transforms uh, the city of Ephesus. All right, it's a... It's so much so that you, you jump down a, verse, a few verses later in uh, verse 17. We read that, that fear fell on them all. Here, here in Ephesus, fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or, or praised. Right? His name was, was lifted up. Right? This place where Jesus' name once upon a time was not known. Now all of a sudden fear falls on them and the name of Jesus is extolled, praised, uh, worshipped. Um, but... But not only was it worshipped, the, the people respond in like this really radical confession and, and repentance. And verse 18 says that also many of those who were now believers came. So they, they, and they, they come to Jesus. They believe, that, they believe who Paul said he was. It says many of the believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Right, so they've got this sort of radical repentance that's, that's really um, evidenced like, in, in pretty profound ways. Because you read on, it says that they show up and they take these, uh, these things in their life, these books and these artifacts that were really incompatible and inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they just burn all this stuff. Right? It's like we're, it's burning the ship's moment almost kind of literally. It's like we can't go back to that because that's not who we are anymore. So you've got this really powerful moment of of repentance, right? But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just like Thursday night at youth camp repentance, right? If, if you went to youth camp, you know what I mean? If you didn't go to youth camp, you're like, I don't know what you're saying, right? But youth camp is kind of known for sometimes Thursday nights will be like this emotional high and there's tears and there's snot and everybody's sorry for their sins. But then on Saturday, like there's no evidence that anything really changed. Uh, this was not that kind of repentance because you read on a little later in uh, Acts 19, and, and what you see is their, their repentance and their turning from sin and idolatry was so significant that it literally had an effect on the local economy. Right? There's a, there in the city of Ephesus was uh, the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, there were some craftsmen there in Ephesus, and they would uh, literally made their wealth, made their living by fashioning these, these idols that were used in Temple worship. And so, man, Paul shows up and he's preaching and he's teaching and people being converted and the Spirit of God pours out on the city of Ephesus and people turn from their idolatry. So all of a sudden, they don't have a need for these idols anymore because they're not worshiping at this temple anymore. And this riot breaks out because, man, 
these guys' profit margins are being cut into because the move of the gospel was so profound in the city of Ephesus. It just, just jacked up the local economy. Like, could you imagine, I mean, just put this aside, could you imagine, man, living and seeing such a powerful move of the gospel even today that like entire segments of the economy that were like contradicting to the gospel were just shut down? Right? Like there's no, there's no, no need for se- like sex trafficking, it's just not a thing anymore. Right? Drugs, just not a thing anymore, the sort of drug industry because people's hearts are so transformed by... I mean, I, I think it could still happen. Right? It can. Because powerful work... What, all that to say, there's such an undeniable work of God in the city of Ephesus. Right? Just undeniable. Right? Think about the, the things you see going on a couple hours away over at Asbury and, and transpose that, multiply that over uh, a city of about... 250,000 people, one of the most significant cities in that area at that time. A, a powerful work of God. And then with that in mind, right, that's how the church in Ephesus sort of started. Those are the early days. And then fast forward about 30, 40 years, and that brings us to Revelation 2. And so here's what Here's what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus through the pen of John the Apostle. He says this, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words... I can hear you turning pages. I'm sorry. I'll slow down. I've had a lot of coffee this morning. It's sunny and I'm happy. So, I'll slow down. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. So, so Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus here begin uh, really with him affirming much of what he sees happening in the church in Ephesus. Again, some 30, 40 years later after the church gets rolling, right, this letter written, Jesus sees what's going on in the church of Ephesus. And through John, he affirms a lot of that. Right? He affirms their, their hard work. Right? This is not a lazy church. Right, this church defied the, like the, kind of the rule is that 80% or 20% of the people do 80% of the work. This was not that kind of church, right? Ephesus is all in. Hard work, toil. He commends them for that. He, he commends them for their rejection of, of evil, their refusal to tolerate uh, the, the evil that, that surrounded them. And this is no small thing in Ephesus. This is a significant city. It's geographically like an important city. And so you got people coming through all the time. Uh, there was worship of all kinds of different gods there in the city of Ephesus. I mean, there's some, there are some gross, depraved things that happened in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus is commended because they, didn't, they wouldn't tolerate that stuff. Right? And so right, they, they endured and stood firm even in the midst of a society that was bent against them. And he, 
Jesus also commends them for their, uh, their sort of discernment and their rejection of uh, false teachers. We didn't cover this in our overview of uh, the church of Ephesus back in Acts, but, but if you read on a little further in Acts 20, uh, the, the day comes where Paul's like, I got to go, I'm leaving, you're never going to see me again. And the words that he leaves with the, the elders, the church leaders there in Ephesus, is, is he says, hey, I'm going to leave, mark my word, there's going to be wolves that come in, false teachers that come in, they're going to try to deceive you and distort the gospel, be on guard. And evidently they listen. Because here Jesus is looking at the church 30, 40 years later. He's like, hey, good for you. Man. You've, you have spotted these false teachers. Right? And, and you, you have not allowed them to come in and distort the good news of Jesus Christ. You, you've been on guard. You've been on watch. And he, he affirms them and commends them for that. And so I mean, up, up to this point, like as far as we know it, the church in Ephesus is crushing it. Right? And I, like, that's not a trick question. Like, these are legit commendations from Jesus, the head of the church. Right? These are things that, that any church worth being called a church would do well to be affirmed in. Right? It's, it's a good thing when Jesus is like, hey, you guys work hard. You guys endure. You guys, you guys reject evil. Right? You, you guys uh, have have kept sort of the, the moral standard that is right and true. You guys know your theology, you know your doctrine, and you reject anything that, that contradicts it. Right? These, are, these are good, right, and necessary things that any church would do well to be commended for. And yet, for, for all that the church in Ephesus got right, which was a lot, for all that they got right, evidently somewhere along the way somewhere in that 30, 40 years from the time the church got rolling to here in, in Revelation 2, for all that they have gotten right, somewhere along the way, they lost sight of the most important thing. Because right, look at what Jesus says to the church in verse 4. He says, But this, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In their good, right zeal for holiness, for theological correctness and doctrinal purity, the church in Ephesus had abandoned the love they had at first. Now, some interpret that, that phrase, right? You've abandoned the love you had at first. That's interpreted different ways. Uh, there's some who would say that refers to uh, love of God or love for Jesus Christ that they've abandoned. Some would say that refers to uh, sort of their love for one another that they've, they've abandoned. Um, I, I, my two cents, I think the answer is probably both. Right? Because you, we have the church starting in Acts 19, and we've got this picture here in Revelation 2, but we also have an entire letter to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. And when I read through the book of Ephesians, I see Paul trying to do a lot of reminding them of the God who loves them and the great lengths he went to to save them. And then he also spends a lot of time talking about how they should relate to one another as, as members of the same church, as members of the household of God. And so I don't, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's probably both and. Right? In fact, 
You think about what, uh, what Jesus said when, when he was kind of put on the spot and some people were trying to catch him and they said, hey, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus' response to those people was like, it was like a two-headed answer, right? Love God, love others. Right? So I don't think these two things are really even like separable in many ways. But, but what I do want to do this morning is I want to, I want to focus on, spend our time talking about this love, this zeal for the Lord that somewhere along the way they had kind of, they'd kind of lost. Because, um, and the reality is, at the end of the day, everything else flows out of our love for God, our love for Jesus Christ. Because right? if we don't get that right, then we're not going to get anything else right. We're just not. So that's what I want to spend our, our time together just kind of focusing on this morning. Considering what we know about the church in, in Ephesus, um, I, this is conjecture, but I think it's, it's based on what you can see. I, I don't think the church in Ephesus like, made a conscious decision to like, cool their affections for the Lord. Right? Like, I don't think they woke up one morning and they were like, we're going to have a special called business meeting. Um, I think we love Jesus too much. We need to step back a little bit. Right? We need to cool off. We're a little too zealous for the things of the Lord. Like, I, don't, I don't think that happened. You know what I'm saying? I don't think there was ever a conscious decision where they were like, you know what, we just, we just let's not love him as much as we once did. But what I do think happened is that um, meant somewhere along the way, right? somewhere in that 30, 40 year span between Acts 19, between Revelation 2, loving God, loving Jesus, just sort of quietly slipped down the list of priorities. Like somewhere along the way, uh, being known for their hard work and their endurance just kind of became more important than actually loving Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, uh, sort of being known for their moral integrity and moral purity, as good as that is, it, like that became more important to them than their love for Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, their theological precision or their you know, being known for sound doctrine just kind of quietly became more important than loving Jesus Christ. Right? And again, don't hear something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying those are, those are not good things. Right? Hard work, endurance, moral integrity and purity, holiness, right? doctrinal uh, purity. These are good, right, necessary things. That was, that was the case then in Ephesus. That's the case now. I, I would contend it's even more the case now in this time we live in when it's kind of like moral boundaries are sort of like regarded by many as something that moves and kind of ebbs and flows and are flexible and, and just rel relative. Right? I would contend we, we would do well to, to hold on even firmer to these moral boundaries and, and hold on even firmer to sound doctrine and, and know, like, know what the book says so that we can defend it. And, and yet... Somewhere along the way for the church in Ephesus, all these good things, these good, right, necessary things 
took priority over the greatest thing, the most important thing. And the end result was a bad thing. To to give, it's an imperfect illustration, but maybe maybe it'll help. Kind of take this out of this ethereal world and put it into real world. When I think about kind of the, the the path the church in Ephesus followed, it looks kind of like, um, kind of like a, a marriage where the things that flow out of the marriage take priority over the marriage itself. You know, things like, like raising the kids becomes more important than investing in the marriage, where paying the bills keeping food on the table, maintaining the house, all these good, right, necessary things, things that you have to do. But, but they kind of take priority over investing in the marriage itself. That's kind of what I see here in the church of Ephesus. The, the focus became so like, they prioritized these things that flowed out of loving Jesus Christ that they just kind of forgotten what it meant to love Jesus Christ where all their effort and energy and focus and attention was on, let's get all these things right. And in that process, they had just kind of cooled off in their affections for Jesus, for who he was, for what he had done. But the, the good news, even in this, right, even in, even in Jesus' words, there, there are some good news. Right, there was, there's still hope because look at what, He says in verse 5, Though they had abandoned their first love, Jesus had not abandoned them. Look at verse 5. It says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So rather than Jesus saying, Hey, sorry, you had a good run 30, 40 years, but you've just lost it, right? No more chances. Right here, Jesus, he offers them the following opportunity, right? It's remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. Let's, let's talk about those for just a second. First, Jesus tells them, he says, remember from where you have fallen. When you think of spiritual disciplines, things that that we should do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we probably think of like, you know, we should read the Bible, we should pray, we should serve, we should give. Uh, Most of us probably aren't initially inclined to think like we should remember. Like we don't associate that with a a spiritual discipline as, uh, as Christians. And yet when you read the Bible, like there's this constant theme of God reminding his people of what he had done for them. Especially even back in the Old Testament. Right? God would do some significant work and he would, and the, the people, as they experienced that, they would build these altars in these places to remember this work that God had done in a specific place at a specific time so that they wouldn't forget it. Right? And then you think about the, the book of Exodus when. God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt through uh, the the Red Sea on dry land. He gives gives them a song that they could sing and remember what he had done. 
It's like God knows that we would be a forgetful, forgetful people. Right? God, God commands us to tell the next generation about all his mighty deeds and his works and, and all that he's done. And the reason is God commands his the reason God commands his people to do that is not just so the next generation would know, though that's a huge part of it, but also so that we would be reminded in our retelling to the next generation. And so here, Jesus is telling the church in, in Ephesus to, to remember from where they've fallen. Remember where all this started. Remember the things that we just read about in Acts 19. Remember how Paul showed up. Remember how fear fell upon you all. Remember how signs and wonders and miracles were being done. Remember how you all confessed, how you repented and you turned. Remember the significance of this. Remember, uh, how you, remember how you turned the local economy upside down because, because you were so zealous about the things of the Lord. Remember, remember from where you have fallen. But he doesn't just tell them, Hey, just remember, and he gives them, the, the, he lays out a path for them to, to get back to that place where they once were. But the first step is, is repentance. That's what he says. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. So at, at its core, this word repentance is just a, a changing of direction. Right? It's, it's turning it's turning our backs towards sin, turning away from sin, and turning our attention uh, to the Lord. And, and again, you remember in Acts 19, like they were marked in the beginning by a sort of radical repentance. Confession, confession uh, divulging their evil practices, right, burning everything so they couldn't return to the life that they once had. It was, it was significant. And, and repentance was their entry point into the Christian life. But here, and I think it's important to point out, repentance is not just the entry point of the Christian life. Right? Repentance is the ongoing ethic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because, and Jesus is writing here to the, the church, to his church. And the, the command is, is repentance. In other words, what I, what I hope we see is repentance is not just for people who aren't Christians. Repentance is not just for people who are out there. Repentance is for us in here. Any time that we, we see, become aware of, become evicted, when it gets like put in our face, anytime we become aware of the reality that we have uh, abandoned our first love, where we have uh, fallen from where we once were, where we have failed to love Jesus Christ as He deserves, our only appropriate response is repentance. It's not just for the non-Christian, it's for the Christian. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest if your life is not one of ongoing repentance, you're, you're just not doing the Christian life right. It's, it's not like Kentucky basketball, like one and done. You know what I mean? Like you repent once and you're like, all right, I'm in, I'm good. I don't have to do that anymore. Whew. Like repentance is what we do as followers of Jesus. As he conforms us into his image and we begin to be uh, convicted of our sin, confronted with, with where we have fallen short and where we fail to measure up, 
Our response is one of repentance. And, and here Jesus is saying, if you're going to get back to where you once were, if you're going to love me the way that you once did, in the ways that were so clearly on display in, in Acts 19, the first step is to repent. To turn. And I mean, I would just kind of bring this into contemporary significance. I, I don't know. I mean, most of us have seen the, this stuff about this revival going on over at Asbury. Uh, and I'll just let you, my convictions are that you can't schedule or plan a revival. Like it just it has to just happen. But at the same time, like there are things that when I read through the Bible that accompany revival. And one of those things is repentance. And you read through, you read through the book, and, and anytime you see like this significant movement of God among his people, it, it, it's almost always accompanied by this spirit of, of confession. And repentance. We are not where we should be. God, we need you. And I, I want to see what's happening elsewhere. I want to see it happen here. In our church, in our community. But it will not happen apart from a spirit of repentance. Again, not just for people out there, but for us in here. Right? If... If God's going to do a powerful, transformative work, like we can't make that happen, but we can't have a spirit of repentance that, that enables that to happen. So we'll move on. Repentance is, we talked about, we remember from where, he calls them to remember from where they've fallen, to repent, right? But repentance is also more than just, uh, it's more than just sorrow, Right? It's, it's more than just an emotion. It's actually accompanied by action, which is what he says after that. He says, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, return to where you once were. So in, in some way, Jesus' words, they are like a reprimand and a warning to his people. But at the same time, they're also an invitation. It's an invitation to come home. Return to the love that you had at first. Return to where you belong. Rekindle the love, the affection, the zeal, the passion that you had for, for both Jesus as Savior and for, for other people around you. And so as we consider a response this morning. Man, I, I think I, I love it when the application is like so crystal clear in the verse, it makes my job a little easier. And so here's the application for us. It's the same as it was for the church in Ephesus. Remember, repent, return. And so talk about remembering. Just, just some questions. Has there ever been a time or a season in your life in which you love Jesus Christ more deeply than you do right now? Right? Has there ever been a time in which you experienced Him in a, more, in a more powerful, transformative way than you are right now? Has there ever been a time when you gave Jesus more of your attention, more of your affection, more of your time, more of your effort, more of your energy 
than you do right now? And if the answer to that question is yes, somebody moved. And it wasn't him. It wasn't him. And if we're honest, this is a church, we can be honest, right? I hope. I hope, I've, I hope, I hope to create a culture where we can just be honest. Most of us in this room, and I'm going to throw myself in here. Most of us, we're asking those questions of ourselves. Has there ever been a time when I've loved Jesus more passionately, more zealously than I do right now? I would say for many, if not most of us, the answer is yes. That we can look back at, at moments, times, seasons in which our, and our love and our zeal for the Lord were just something different than they are right now. Right? There's been moments where you've experienced Him in more powerful and profound ways than you are right now. There's been moments where you gave Him more of your attention, more of your affection, more of your time, more of your effort, more of your energy than you currently are. And listen, I'm, I'm not even... Remember the church in Ephesus, I, I don't think they consciously decided to do that. I'm not saying that you made a conscious decision to be like, you know what, I just don't want to leave, love Jesus as much as I used to. But it happens... Right? Like things jump up the priority list. Again, not intentionally, but life happens. Things happen. Jobs get crazy. Families expand. Right? Responsibilities, like they start to stack up, and all of a sudden you look around, and you're like, I don't, man, I don't even know the last time that I was just alone with the Lord. Right? We, we, we prioritize these other things over Jesus. Right? We, we give ourselves over to an infinite number of lesser loves. And in doing so, we look past the one who, who loved us and gave himself for us. But praise God. He is so kind. He is so merciful. He is so gracious. He is so good. That even when we've sort of functionally abandoned him, he has not abandoned us. And so the invitation that, that Jesus extended to the church in Ephesus is the same invitation extended to you and to me this morning. To repent and to return. To repent and to return. So I invite you to stand with me, if you would. The band's going to come and lead us in a song. I'm going to pray for us first. The band's going to come and lead us. Uh, but but here's, here's what I would ask. You, obviously, you, you're more than welcome to stay in your seat, sing, whatever you feel the Lord leading you to do. But I would say, if, if, there's, if there's anything sort of resonating in your soul, that's like, I, I'm... I, I, I do not love Jesus right now the way that I once did. And if there's any sort of recognition of that or, or conviction of that, then my personal invitation with you is to, to join me at the altar in a spirit of repentance that the Lord might restore and revive us. And Father, would you meet us here this morning? We need you. The song we sang right before this message, we, we are so dependent on you.
And Lord, we, we come confessing, at least I come confessing, I would assume that many in this room can come confessing that, uh, Lord, we may not love you right now the way that we once did. And, and, and for most of us, Lord, I don't think that's any conscious decision of our own. It's just other things have sort of subtly and quietly taken priority. We can't remember the last time we spent meaningful time with you in your word. We can't remember the, the last time we, we spent, um, you know, we're just on our faces in prayer asking you to do a work in us. And that's not universal. That's not all of us here. But I would say for many of us, that's, that's our story. That's where we are. And Father, we, we long to see you move. I long to see you move in this church. I want to see you move in this community. And I, I, want, to, I want to celebrate what you're doing in other places by, by seeing it happen here. But Lord, it won't happen apart from a spirit of repentance among us. And so, Lord, where our affections have cooled for you, would you convict us of that? Where we have not given you the attention, the, the affection, the time, the energy, the effort that, that you so rightfully deserve, would you convict us of that? Lord, would you help us to, to repent? And help us to return from where we've fallen. So Lord, we come to you this morning with a spirit, a spirit of repentance. Do a work in us, Lord. Do it in here first. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.